Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. But first, we start with the police crackdown with the transit police enforcement team. This is super interesting. You got the transit cops here. They did a team-up with the RCMP in Richmond, started doing some sobriety checks around some SkyTrain stations here. Look what they racked up here in just a few hours. You got three impaired charges. They caught nine drivers without a license and 21 drivers with no insurance. Wow, that is a lot. Let's talk to Kyla Lee about it, lawyer at Acumen Law. Kyla, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's interesting to see the transit police teaming up with the RCMP here to do spot checks. I've never seen that before. Is that is that usual? Have you heard of that before? I haven't seen them work together, but it is not unusual for the RCMP to work with other organizations, often with uh, CBSC or sometimes CP police, um, for the purposes of doing sobriety roadblocks. Okay, so let's talk about the this. how many people they caught here. Now, they got three people for impaired, I guess... You know, I don't. That's not, I guess, a very surprising number to me. What do you think of that number? No, it's it's not surprising. It's sort no. of average what you'd expect to see at a roadblock. Yeah, but then the, now here's the ones that jumped out at me though. Nine drivers driving without a license. What do you think of that? Uh, that that's a surprisingly high number. Um, that tells me that there's a lot of people that are driving around every day undetected who don't have a valid driver's license. Why do you think that is? Uh, Well, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. One is right now there's not a huge incentive to people to have a valid license or to have insurance. You know, it used to be that if you got caught, you know, you were in an accident and you were driving without a valid license or you didn't have insurance, then you could be sued and you'd be personally liable for any damages flowing from the accident. It could be considered a, a, a factor that would lead to punitive damages if you were knowingly doing it. But now, because you can't be sued as a result of a motor vehicle collision, that sort of, you know, thing in the back of your head that says I might be dragged into court for this is no longer there. And it takes away an incentive to actually go in and renew your license. Okay. And this is the other one that jumped out at me. 21 drivers here in the space of this one roadblock. No insurance. So people pulled over driving without insurance. Does that surprise you? Like, I thought, I think, man, that is risky. It is risky, but it's not as risky as it used to be. Now, if you were driving without insurance, um, you know, first of all, if you get a ticket, it's a $598 fine, but there's no penalty points for it. So it's just money, and if you dispute it, you can go in court, and you can usually get a significant reduction in the fine because it's a very high fine. Um, in addition, there's really no real reminder anymore. You know, it used to be that if you had the insurance sticker on the back of your car and it was expired, people would come up to you. I used to never put my sticker on my car because I would always forget. Um, and people would come up to me and they'd say, hey, your insurance is expired. And it would be this reminder to put my sticker off because <laughs> um, I had insurance. But for other people who are uninsured, it's a reminder to get your insurance. And we've yeah. seen a lot of delays lately as well with Canada Post. So it, it becomes more difficult for people to get those reminders that, yes, your insurance is expired and now you have to renew it. Yeah, and the stickers are no longer required, right? That's been dropped by ICBC, correct? Yes, during uh, during COVID, uh, they removed the requirement for the sticker. Um, yeah. and, uh, Police vehicles are equipped with technology that can allow them to to scan the license plate and see whether or not there's active insurance. So there wasn't really perceived to be a need for it from a law enforcement perspective, but there seems to be a societal need for it nevertheless. 
Yeah, because the police have got those computers in their police cruisers. They can run a license plate on the spot, and they can tell. I guess they can tap into the ICBC database, right? And they can tell if you if your insurance is up to date or not. Yes, the data is uploaded yeah. um, into the system every day, so it's it's daily data on uh, active insurance licenses and prohibited drivers. Right. So I guess from that point of view, they don't need the sticker to be able to tell whether you're insured or not, but. Like, I agree with you. Like, I think that that sticker was a motivating thing for a lot of people to make sure that you've got your insurance paid up because, you know, you're driving around. If you're driving around, your sticker is out of date. That was a very conspicuous thing on the back of your car. You know, everyone can tell you're driving around without any insurance. So do you think that after they drop the sticker requirement, like maybe some people are tempted now to just keep driving, even though their insurance is not paid up. Maybe that's why they caught so many people uninsured drivers at these at this roadblock. Oh, I'm sure that people are tempted. You know, your your perception that you're going to be caught is is much smaller because you don't have you know the the sticker of shame um, saying yeah. that you your insurance is expired, and people aren't aware of the police enforcement measures, so they don't really have that that mental thing that's saying I'm going to be caught driving without insurance. I'd better renew my insurance. Yeah, but you mentioned earlier that if you are caught driving without, if your insurance is not paid up, what is the what is the penalty again? It's a five hundred and ninety-eight dollar fine, but no points. Yeah. No points. Yeah. Hmm. What do you think of that? It may be time for ICBC to add points um, associated with driving without insurance. There's good yeah. reason for it, um, obviously, but at, at the end of the day, right now, there's not much of an incentive other than financial to go and get your insurance. Okay, what do you think about transit police teaming up with the RCMP in general to do a team up here for drivers around SkyTrain stations? Do you think that is within within the responsibility of the transit cops to team do a team up with the Mounties? I think it's a, a great. I think transit police, you know, they're a much smaller force, um, and you know, their jurisdiction is is generally around SkyTrain stations. By teaming up with the RCMP, they can cast a wider net. And, you know, because people are, are using SkyTrain often to get to and from places where they're drinking and they may leave their car, there are real concerns about impaired drivers getting off the SkyTrain, getting in their car and sort of risking the short drive home. So it makes sense to be doing these types of roadblocks because I think you're yeah. catching a segment of the population that wasn't previously being caught. I guess the, the main rationale for these these roadblocks are to catch impaired drivers, but they can obviously they can catch you on other stuff, too. Like we saw... We saw ticketing here for uh, unlicensed drivers, uninsured drivers. What about distracted drivers? Like, can they stop you at one of these roadblocks if they see that a phone in your hand? They can give you a distracted driving ticket. They can. I think most yeah. people are probably smart enough if they're in the line of cars waiting to go through a roadblock to put their phone out of sight, or at least I would hope so. But yet they can give you a distracted driving ticket. And if you're a class of an N driver and you're doing something with your phone that you're not supposed to be, like using it for GPS, you can also be ticketed for that. Okay, what is the latest on the distracted driving file for you, Kyla? Like, are you still getting a lot of people fighting those tickets, or are they difficult to challenge? They are very difficult to challenge, but a lot of people are fighting them. And I would say a lot more now that we've seen sort of the impacts of, of inflation. Um, because it is such a stiff penalty with the four points and the $368 fine, um, people are more incentivized to dispute those tickets. Um, because money is tight and the potential that you would lose your license, have to pay driver uh, penalty point or risk premiums, um, and uh, the high fine encourages more people to dispute the distracted driving tickets as opposed to the cheaper tickets that exist. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Kyla Lee. We're talking about transit police teaming up with the RCMP. They caught a bunch of impaired, unlicensed, and uninsured drivers. The I had a caller uh, during the break, Kyle, who was saying, how are they getting impaired people on transit? Well, the, the, this was a roadblock they set up on the on the road outside some SkyTrain stations, right? Yes. So yeah. usually what will happen is people will leave their car parked near the SkyTrain station to save money. They'll SkyTrain into downtown and then uh, SkyTrain back to their car, get in their car and drive. And that's where they're getting the impaired drivers. Yeah. Yeah. So they're saying that this is the transit. See, I always thought I was a little surprised at that because I thought, well, the transit cops are doing mostly enforcement in, in the stations themselves. But obviously they can ticket you outside, too. Let's go to Doug in Surrey on the open line. Hi, Doug. Go ahead. 
Hi, Mike and Kyla. I can remember a few years ago there was a guy who was busted driving a taxi driver, uh, a taxi driver in Richmond, and he was caught. Uh, I forget what the offense was, but anyway, they uh, checked out his uh, license and everything was, uh, while well, somewhat less than legal. A few days later, they mm. busted him again, and he had a very legitimate-looking driver's license. And I remember, I think it was. He didn't have his full name. He had an initial. It makes you wonder, how did he get his hot little hands on a legitimate-looking driver's license? You, so, you mean it was like a forged license, like a fake it license? It strangely sounds like somebody got a little under the table, and all of a sudden a very oh. legitimate-looking driver's license. He's back driving on the road. Kyla, you ever heard of that? Oh, absolutely. And remember that really? uh, fake, uh, fake driver's licenses are very prevalent because uh, teenagers use them to try and buy alcohol. Oh, wow. Okay. About, about people actually using it, will you show one to a police officer if they're stopped? Here's my license? Yeah, wow. it doesn't happen as, as often um, with BC licenses, but we do see a lot of cases of forged licenses from other jurisdictions yeah. where people have fake IDs from other other countries or, or the United States or other provinces and then try and use those to drive in BC. Ken in South Surrey. Hi, Ken. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, guys. I, I'm trying to understand this. So, if I don't have insurance on my vehicle and I go out and smash it up, who pays for all that damage? Good question, Kyla. ICBC will pay the claim to the person who um, to the person whose vehicle was damaged, but uh, the person whose vehicle was damaged doesn't have the right to sue you. So they just get whatever ICBC assesses the claim at. Um, under no fault, you no longer have the right to sue in court for anything arising out of a motor vehicle collision. Thank you for that. Let's go to Jamie in Cash Creek. Hi, Jamie. Go ahead. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Go ahead. I was in uh, Ashcroft driving my truck, pulling a trailer with lawnmowers on it. A cop pulled me over, and I didn't have my trailer hooked up properly to my truck. But I took another chain out, fixed it right there before she even took her ticket book out. She wrote me a ticket anyways. I wasn't happy. You did it. Went to Camel's Court, and I was sitting there waiting, and I seen a RCMP officer in front of the door uh, picking off names of people that were there, then calling the, the cop that wrote the ticket to show up to the courthouse. Okay. So I read the ticket and said I didn't have to go see this cop, so I didn't. So I went in the courthouse, sat there, and then the judge went over the names of the people that didn't show up, and my name was on there, and I put, I'm here, Your Honor. But my cop wasn't, so I got off on the ticket. Okay, so the police officer did not show up that day. Another police officer uh, radioing the police officers to show up that day. Oh, oh, okay, okay, Kyla, what do you think of that? Yeah, that's uh, pretty common where officers will walk around the courthouse and find out who's there. And if they see that uh, there's somebody there for one of their colleagues who isn't present, they'll be on their phone trying to get them to hurry down to the courthouse uh, before the ticket gets thrown out. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember someone telling me once it, you should always dispute a ticket because if the police officer doesn't show, uh, that's how you beat the rap. But they, usually they do show up, right? Yes. Uh, they yeah. they only don't show about 17% of the time, according to studies okay. that have been done by the court. Yeah. Interesting. 17. Thank you, Kyla, for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk now about the brazen assassination of BC gangster Jimmy Slice Sandu in Phuket, Thailand. The international police investigation that it sparked. And this is an incredible story. And I highly recommend the great work by award-winning Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Bolin on this story. She traveled recently to Thailand to investigate this story. Give me a follow on Twitter. I'll post the link there for you. I've got Kim standing by. First, let's have a listen to this report from Global News. It's a disturbing video of a gang hit in Phuket, Thailand, February 4th. 31-year-old Jimmy Slice Sandu can be seen getting out of his vehicle. Then, the well-known BC gangster is ambushed by two gunmen and shot more than a dozen times. Suspect Matthew Dupre was arrested in Alberta. 
co-accused, Jean Carl Larkamp, is believed to be somewhere in Canada and a huge reward is being offered for his whereabouts. Jean Carl Larkamp, wanted for murder by the Royal Canadian Mountain Police and the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit of British Columbia, also with a reward of up to $100,000. Okay, the crazy twist in this story since that report, one of the BC fugitives in the case, Jean Larkamp, killed in a plane crash in Ontario last year. The other suspect facing possible extradition to Thailand to face charges there. Let's discuss it all now with my guest Kim Boland, the award-winning crime writer for the Vancouver Sun and her great report on this saga. Kim, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. You bet, Kim. Welcome home. This is some uh, incredible digging and work you did in Thailand on this story. Let's start with the the guy who was killed in in this brazen hit here in Phuket, Thailand, Jimmy Slice Sandu. Who was this guy? Well, Jimmy Sandu was only 32 when he died. He spent most of his life here in B.C. Uh, He grew up in the Fraser Valley. He moved in with his grandma when he was seven years old, had been sent over by family in Punjab, and unfortunately started getting into trouble as a teenager and, you know, got some gang associations, ended up with a couple of serious assault convictions that kind of paved the way for his deportation. Never got citizenship here. Uh, he also uh, was the only suspect in the stabbing of a Red Scorpion gang leader in Abbotsford in 2014. He was charged in that case with second-degree murder, but a year later the charges were stayed. And I heard at the time that a witness who, you know, had cooperated sort of withdrew their testimony from the case. So he ended up being deported. And, you know, it was sort of the beginning of the end for Mr. Sandhu. He faced some serious charges in India uh, that, um, you know, he got bail in that case and fled. He was traveling around Southeast Asia, building a drug empire with others. He was a high profile member of the United Nations gang. And, uh, you know, well... Uh, On a break in Thailand, he had only been there for eight days prior to his death. He was uh, shot to death in the very dramatic way that was described in your report and in my report. And, uh, you know, we now have the plot was clearly planned in Canada, though it was executed 12,000 kilometers away. And not only is there one suspect who is fighting extradition right now, the second man dead, but my story revealed there's actually a third suspect who's not charged yet is also Canadian. Wow. I mean, the links to BC and to Canada in this saga are, are incredible. And this guy, Jimmy Sandu, when he was gunned down there in Phuket, Thailand, they had a lot of evidence there, Kim, and including video, video surveillance evidence of showing the actual murder that is some very very chilling video you see this guy getting out of his car as you describe in your story in the sun looks like he almost looks like he's on vacay he's uh, he's wearing flip-flops and a t-shirt and didn't seem to be too worried that anyone was out to get him even though he had a lot of enemies obviously yeah not worried at all now to be fair pretty well everyone in phuket dresses like that short t-shirts it is a hot (laughs) vacation spot and you know that is how people dress when they're cruising on the streets in the day but yeah he had no security with him now i stayed in that hotel for a couple of nights so i could really check out the scene and he was in what is known as a private villa sort of at the front of the property closest to the water so the hotel says well you know it's not really part of us so you can book it through the hotel they will email the owner uh, you know, so it was quite isolated from the road. They clearly had a lot of good intelligence about where he was. Like, you couldn't just wander onto that property and find the guy. You had to have known in advance where he was. Uh, so, wow. you know, that is part of the story. Uh, you know, did someone he know give him up? Um, you know, people I interviewed over there said, well, look, you know, when you check in at the airport, you basically say where you're staying. Uh, they take your fingerprints. I've never had that happen to me before, right at the airport. Very close-up photo of your face. And, of course, that did these guys in because their fingerprints were, you know, found in the vehicles they rented that uh, had DNA in them that were linked, that, you know, was linked to uh, some other evidence found at the scene. So it seems like a very compelling case. Of course, uh, the one guy who's facing extradition now, Matthew Dupre, is, you know, arguing that he shouldn't be sent to Thailand. 
Uh, but I talked to a senior police official there who says, look, we've already waived the death penalty in this case because, of course, Thailand does have the death penalty for murder convictions, which, you know, is something that's concerning to the Canadian government. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about these, these, two, these two suspects who were identified by the Thai police, one of whom later died in a, in a plane crash back in Canada. Kim, so you had Gene Larkamp from Trail, B.C. He's the man who died in this, this plane crash in Ontario last year. Matthew Dupre, you mentioned, he's from Alberta, right? Yeah, he has lived in Wollastoke in B.C. Uh, he's originally from the East Coast, lived in, in Ontario. What's really interesting is both these suspects were in the Canadian military, right? Mm-hmm. And then they worked as military contractors afterwards. Some might say they were mercenaries. Uh, but, you know, I've talked to people who said, look, you know, the Canadian military, they saw active duty in Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, they, you know, do all kinds of things when they're in the military, right, that normal citizens don't do. And, you know, did that taint them? Were they traumatized? Uh, but, you know, if all these facts bear out as they've been presented, uh, you know, they were involved in an international execution. Yeah. And this was some incredible work by the the Thailand police, it sounds like. You mentioned that when people arrive at the airport there in Thailand, they take your photograph, they take your fingerprints. So when these two when these two guys arrived in Thailand, what what that was was that crucial to the police investigation too? Are they were able to identify them? Of course, yeah, it really yeah. was because, you know, we posted some additional video you know, of the suspects, uh, you know, after the shooting, cruising along the beach. And quite frankly, they're shadowy figures. You can't make out details as to who they are from that. Uh, yeah. But it did allow them to kind of track their whole route. And then there was some video that's clear that shows uh, what looks exactly like Dupre's uh, sleeve tattoo on his right arm. Uh, so, yeah, they've been able to piece it all together. Uh, I don't know, you know, people, again, that I spoke to over there said, it's not the normal route to go if you're planning something like this, like through the international airport, right? Like, mm. it's very easy to cross in from Cambodia on overland. And in fact, you know, a lot of people who are getting visa renewals or whatever kind of go through that route every day, and there are people at the border that help you cross. So, you know, they could have, uh, if these two are in fact, you know, the guilty ones, uh, they could have... Um, done a better job of entering and exiting Thailand, according to the people that I talked to. The other thing I found extraordinary in your reporting on this was some of the other work that was done by the Thai police there in Phuket, Thailand, including recovering a, a weapon. So there were, they found, what, some, some guns, uh, guns that were thrown into the ocean, and they were able to retrieve those? Is that right? Yes, they were. And yes, it was good work, not to diminish that, but uh, if you uh, know this particular area, uh, the waterfront, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, Boundary Bay, like the tide goes way, way out, and it's very, very shallow. So uh, they, you know, walked along this water at night. It's not even really a beach. There's actually little seawalls on some of the villas that are down there. You know, like at, at high tide, you would have to, you know, get your feet wet to walk along this beach, right? And they tossed the guns into the ocean. Well, when the, you know, there was water when they threw them, but there wouldn't have been water there for long, right? Tide goes oh, out and no. you basically see the guns glinting in the sunlight, right, as uh, one of the people I interviewed said. So, uh, you know, this uh, local person was saying, look, if you did any research, they would have, you would have known that, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, what's the surveillance, Video also shows these these guys going to uh, Sandu's villa on February second, two days before the murder, at you know, two forty nine a.m. and putting a tracker under his car. Wow. It, go, they, it shows them going back the next night and checking the tracker. Right? I mean, there's so much CCTV footage across Phuket, which really helped the investigation. But unfortunately, it's not surveillance video that anyone is monitoring. Otherwise, this whole thing could have been prevented. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the targeted murder in Thailand of BC gangster Jimmy Slice Sandu. He was gunned down in Phuket, Thailand. 
and the international police investigation tracing all the way back home here to British Columbia and Canada. Speaking to Kim Bolin, the award-winning crime writer for the Vancouver Sun, just back from Thailand where she was investigating this story. So, Kim, let's talk a little bit about this this other guy that was in, uh, identified as a suspect here, Gene Larkamp who was killed in a, a plane crash. What is the deal there? How did this guy, he ended up being killed in a remote part of northern Ontario, right? Yes, that is correct. Uh, it was last April 29th. Uh, there was another fugitive from actually a rival gang aboard the plane and two young pilots that weren't qualified uh, to actually fly with by radar at night, right? So wow. uh, they had been renting out their services, uh, kind of like... Um, you know, and they shouldn't have been doing that, right? So, uh, you know, I, the plane went down due to bad weather and inexperience of the pilot. That is what the uh, Transportation Safety Board found. Uh, but, of course, the question that they're not looking at is where they were eventually going. They sort of know the next spot they were about to stop. And what was the plan? Were these fugitives going to cross the border into the United States, right? So we may never know uh, that detail, uh, given that it was kind of an underground flight, if you will. Uh, but they did go down in bad weather, and, uh, you know, so there was no foul play uh, with regard to the crash. Uh, wow. And then, of course, there is this mystery suspect. I, I know who he is, but he's not charged yet. So uh, there is an additional person that uh, will likely be charged as being involved in this conspiracy uh, that wasn't at the scene at the time of the murder in Thailand. And, you know, what's interesting, what I also found in my report, is that there's linkage to the Wolfpack Gang Alliance. So, you know, that is a group that has some Hells Angels in it, some Red Scorpions, and some independent soldiers. It started about 2011. Uh, in fact, you know, up in Kelowna, people involved in that group, that fledgling group at the time, uh, were targeted, and that's when Jonathan Bacon was, of course, gunned down in that very brazen attack that many people will remember at the resort in Kelowna. So, you know, the Wolf Pack is behind this, uh, according to the investigators uh, in the case so far, and that means that this is, you know, related to the gang conflict right here in Canada. You have, you know, the United, United Nations gang, of which Sandy was a member, being at war with the Wolfpack, the Red Scorpions, one of the subgroups, for a long, long time. So it is kind of amazing to think that, you know, this gang war, if you will, from B.C. has become so sophisticated that they're willing to hunt someone down on the other side of the world. Yeah, boy, this is incredible. The, the, the tentacles of this thing is, are just extraordinary. Just a couple of minutes left here, Kim. Let's talk a little bit about the case against one of the other suspects here. It was identified by the Thai police, Matthew Dupre. And they want him, you touched on this earlier, they want him extradited back to Thailand, right? But Canada, could you talk a little bit about the death penalty issue there? Because Canada would typically not extradite someone to a foreign country if they face a potential death penalty, correct? Yes, that's correct. Now, uh, that is something his lawyer, James Lockyer, raised at an extradition hearing last fall. However, uh, on December 9th, an Alberta judge ruled that, uh, you know, at the first stage anyway, the evidence that was highlighted uh, before her in the extradition hearing, you know, met the threshold of, you know, could lead to a conviction of someone, and therefore uh, she ordered uh, that he would be sent to Thailand. However, there are several more stages he can appeal, and ultimately the federal justice minister may have to decide. But what I did get from a senior uh, official with the Royal Thai Police is that they have agreed to waive the death penalty. So we haven't seen that, you know, written down in a, in court in Canada yet, but it looks like there are... Uh, measures in place to ensure that if he is sent to Thailand, uh, he wouldn't, in fact, uh, face the death penalty if convicted. Let's go a minute left, Cam. Phuket is a, a, a very popular tourist destination for a lot of people, including people from British Columbia. Were, did you pick up any sense that officials there were worried about this murder might affect the reputation of safety there for Canadians traveling there? We've got 30 seconds. 
Yeah, no. Honestly, the yeah. local Thai people are just getting on with their lives. They're not overly concerned about this. It happened almost a year ago now. I think the fact that the suspects are from Canada, the victim was from Canada, it, it's easy for them to say, look, this has nothing to do with us. You know, some people took an opportunity and they took out their enemy. It just happened okay. to happen in Phuket. Great work as always, Kim. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Okay, let's talk about Canada's new alcohol consumption guidelines here. Now, this just out from the Canadian Centre for Substance Use and Addiction. Two drinks a week is the new recommended limit. Not two drinks a day. That was the old limit. Two drinks a week is the new recommendation here for a safe drinking limit. Anything beyond that? You are increasingly at risk of a range of conditions, including heart disease, stroke, and cancer, according to this government-funded center. Now, is this going too far? Is this the Canadian nanny state run amok? I have seen the ruinous effects of alcohol up close in my own life. Alcohol can be extremely harmful substance. So I certainly think public health officials have a role here in making recommendations, but is two drinks a week an excessively strict limit? I've got Dan Malik standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this guy. Now, this is this video has kind of gone kind of viral here now. This is a guy outside the beer store in Hamilton, Ontario, talking to CHCH News about this two-drink limit. Have a listen to this. What did you buy today? I bought uh, six Bush Light, six Bud Light, and I love them, Tall Boys. Tall Boys? Uh, how much would you drink a day? Well, what day? A regular day, I don't know, maybe a couple beers, depends. Weekends, maybe, you know, five beer. Okay. Two drinks a week. What do you think of that? Well, that's just not uh, feasible, not in this country. Well, come on, man, two drinks a week, what's that going to do for you? I mean, that doesn't even get you through a day. A reasonable amount, if you're, I mean, if you're at home, you should be able to have, like, uh, four beer. That's just, that ain't, that's just two more. I mean, I'll have six, but four is a fair number. But there shouldn't even be guidelines anyway. Why are you going to tell me how much I can drink at home? Okay, so that's one of the bottom line questions for that guy. Why are you being told at all how much to drink? Well, I, I think there is room for some guidelines here, but two drinks a week. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Dan Malik Dan, from Brock University. Dan is in the Department of Health Sciences there. He is a medical historian specializing in drug and alcohol regulation and policy. Very pleased to welcome him. Dan, thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure. Good morning. Okay, Dan, two drinks a week. How did we go from two drinks a day as a, as a guideline to two, two a week? How'd that happen? Well, um, according to the, the CCSA, the Center on Substance Use and Addiction, um, their argument was uh, since the guidelines came out in 2011, uh, the research has, quote, progressed and there's time to reevaluate it. Um, but what they did was they select, they took about 6,000 studies, filtered out most of them, looked at 16, and came up with this number. Um, so it's, uh, it was based upon the idea that alcohol must be harmful and therefore let's just um, track the harm. Right. Okay. And so when we take a look at this two drink a week limit, I mean, they've made some very serious uh, recommendations here about the risk of excessive drinking of more than that amount. As we, as I discussed there earlier, cancer and and these other uh, terrible conditions. What do you think of that? Is that is that backed up by the science here? Well, it's it's tough to say because the uh, first of all. Um, as you noted earlier, I always want to qualify this, you know, excessive drinking can lead to a lot of problems, and, and I don't want to deny that. I'm not sitting here saying people right. just go on benders constantly. But um, because they've used such a narrow uh, band of research that seemed to be directing everything in the same direction, I'm not surprised that this came out uh, in this way. The problem is that they're representing risk in a very different way than could really be meaningful to, to everyone, right? So if you're saying you have 100% increased risk in uh, contracting a certain disease, that sounds pretty scary. But if you have a super low risk of contracting that disease, and 100% increase 
isn't really very meaningful, right? Um, and that's what we see with a lot of the conditions they're looking at. Um, it's my favorite example is liver cirrhosis, because the study on liver cirrhosis compared people who don't drink to people who do drink, and it makes it look like, oh my God, if you drink, you have this really huge risk of getting it. But what it means is, compared to someone who doesn't drink, and we know that liver cirrhosis is actually generally attributed to drinking excessively, right? So it's kind of this weird uh, way of representing it. As for the zero to two drinks matter issue, well, again, this is one of those things where um, risk might increase marginally, but um, not meaningfully, right? So so the, the odds of having three drinks a week affecting you at all, any different than two, is really low. Um, so, so that's where it gets, it seems to be a bit of an overreach and why people like the guy you quoted seem to be a little skeptical about this number. Yeah, yeah, he certainly seems to be skeptical in that sort of viral video we played here. I'm going to play another, another thing this, this guy said, because I thought this kind of jumped out at me as well, because he makes the point, well, hang on, there are lots of other things that are, are bad for you. Are they sort of picking on this one uh, this one product of alcohol? And here's what he had to say, Dan, then I'll get your thoughts. So this is the guy outside the, liquors, uh, the liquor store in Hamilton. Have a listen. The main point here is why are they telling me what I can drink at home? What, can I have uh, two liters of pop? Can I have two liters of pop? Well, what's more healthy? Four beers or two liters of Coca-Cola? Do the math. Okay, so I mean, you know, excessive consumption of sugar is obviously bad, and salt, and caffeine. I mean, there's all these terrible things for us, right? Do you think that alcohol is getting kind of picked on here? Well, alcohol is a really interesting one. Yeah, um, the short answer is yes, but um, for a reason. This organization's job is to look at certain substance uses and find harm, right? Even though it's substance use and addiction. So yeah, they look. They've done some great stuff on harm reduction, for example, in with drug, uh, with drug use. But when it came to alcohol, they didn't really seem to have any place in their research for the potential benefits, even though some of their data shows very clear benefits. So that when they say things like, so so that's the one thing. The other, thing, I just want to have to qualify this guy. What this guy's saying? Why can they tell me what I can't have? They're not. Their argument, and I agree with it, is it's a recommendation. Right. My concern is that it's a recommendation that pitches alcohol as so dangerous that you are an irresponsible person if you're drinking more than that. And that's a problem because that creates a lot of stress, anxiety, can create stigma around drinking. And when there's stigma around drinking, sometimes it's driven into people drinking in secret because they don't want people to see them and there can be problems with that. So there's a lot of other attendant problems that they don't consider when the, uh, the CCSA doesn't consider when it, or doesn't acknowledge when they're looking at when they're making a recommendation like this i think yeah. it's a very irresponsible recommendation for public health agent uh, officials to make mm. okay do you think that there's been an argument in canada recently whether there should be warning labels on alcohol should there be a warning label just like there's a warning label on a pack of cigarettes this product could give you cancer give you heart disease cause stroke do you think that should be displayed on the side of a bottle of alcohol uh my short answer is no. Um, one of the reasons is, is there's sort of a false equivalency made with tobacco. Um, tobacco research was fairly robust in the extent to which uh, one can contract different cancers. Uh, this research is not as robust, and it's it's fairly uh, strongly debated. Definitely when it comes to something like stroke, one of the most egregious, which is problematic statements they make in this report is that um, anything over seven drinks a week, you have a higher risk of things like stroke and heart disease, but or heart attack or coronary disease, I think they call it. But when you look at their data, actually up until seven drinks a week, alcohol is protective against stroke. So it's like, wow. wait a minute, how can you say seven drinks a week increases your risk when you're showing us data that says it actually decreases marginally, like really small percentage, but it decreases. So, so there's something happening here where I kind of argue it's a bit of an ideological thing where they're saying there can't possibly be a benefit. So let's just kind of smooth over any indication of benefit. For example, diabetes has been known to, to have, um, alcohol has been known to have a protective effect against diabetes, like really strong protective effect. For some reason, we don't know why, but they kind of just ignore that, although they do show the data, they just don't talk about that, right? So it, it's a very problematic recommendation. It's really limited. It 
does not accept or does not recognize the positive effects alcohol can have in a person's life. For example, helping people relax at the end of the week or enjoying times with friends. Now, some people say, um, can you do that without alcohol? I guess, you, mm-hmm. yes, you can, but a lot of people don't. And it does enhance people's enjoyment and happiness and things like that. And those things are all very po- healthful and positive, whereas mm-hmm. anxiety, stress, all of that stuff can have negative physical impact that they do not recognize in this research. Last question for you, Dan. You, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we don't want to downplay the negative impacts of alcohol. It can be a, a very, very hazardous thing in someone's life. But what do you think that there is room for public policy makers and policymakers to, to bring in a, some kind of a limit? Like, like if you were going to set a limit or a recommendation, how many drinks per week do you think it should be? If not two, then what should the number be? Well, it's not really my field, but I think that the previous uh, limit of 10 to 15 or two to three drinks that was spoken variously in different places has been widely agreed upon by much more research than 16 papers and internationally so, right? And that seems to have been something that you can imagine drinking more than 15 drinks a week might be a little excessive. Even the guy uh, in that, that recording sounded like he was maybe hitting about 15 a week. Um, but so, so I think that there's you know, there really needs to be a longer discussion about pros and cons, positive yeah. and negative. I think it's good that, that we have recommendations, but they have to be realistic recommendations. Otherwise, it completely discredits the agency that's making them, and people will just say, I oh, forget it. Why am I listening to any recommendations at all? And that can't mm-hmm. really be beneficial either. Dan, thank you for your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you. Dan Malik there, Brock University. He's a a medical historian, specializes in alcohol and drug policy. All right, let's talk about this drama at the Vancouver Canucks now. The head coach, Bruce Boudreaux, officially fired yesterday. This was the worst kept secret in British Columbia that this guy was on the chopping block. They knew they were going to fire him. I think that he was kind of hung out to dry and humiliated here while they finally made it official yesterday. Canucks President Jim Rutherford speaking yesterday. Unfortunately, it's uh, turned out the way it did. Nobody takes great pride in this. I've known Bruce for a long time. He's been a friend, and I feel very bad about it. And I will apologize to Bruce for this. Is probably in my interviews over the course of the season, when people ask me a question... I'm probably too direct and too honest. I've done that my whole career. I've tried to be honest. I've tried to answer the best I can. And sometimes that affects certain people. And in this case, it probably did affect him. And, uh, and I'm sorry I did that. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Blake Price. Blake is a veteran Vancouver sportscaster and host of the Sakaris and Price Show podcast. Blake, thanks for coming on. Anytime. Okay, Blake, we heard Canucks president Jim Rutherford apologizing there to Bruce Boudreaux for the way this thing was handled. Boudreaux was officially fired on Sunday morning, but everyone knew this was coming a long time ago, right? They absolutely did uh, via, you know, on the record insider information from the nation's best reporters to local reporters breaking the story. And even before that, uh, innuendo from uh, from various different sources that often comes from the management itself. Let's make no mistake, Jim Rutherford is known to be a talker, and he speaks to the nation's best reporters and often leaks them information, you know, in a constructive way. And it just backfired on him uh, this time. The information got out quickly, and it was uh, the emperor wears no clothes. Uh, and so. Uh, yeah, everybody knew that this was coming, including the head coach, who for the last couple of weeks has had to coach games that uh, he knew were among his last. And what did you think about the way that was handled? I mean, this was like this torturous, long, drawn-out, cringeworthy process here for this poor guy. I mean, Boudreaux looked very emotional in that final game here. He was He was really put through the ringer here. What did you think of the way the team handled this? Well, it was... It was atrocious it, re- it really was yeah. there, and, and the, the thing that he failed to address yesterday that was just so easy even though the the question was asked of him specifically was why wouldn't you just go to an interim head coach why do you have to put bruce boudreau 
through all of this. When you've got tenured head coaches on the bench right beside him, Mike Yo has been a National Hockey League head coach a couple of times. Why don't you just slide Mike Yo into that starter's bench uh, until you find the guy that you really, really want? His answer yesterday was, oh, he's under contract. Oh, no, we have, we're understanding. Bruce Boudreaux is under contract. He has to go out there as long as you employ him. But the classy thing, the, the gentlemanly thing to do would have been to say, Bruce, you're not our guy. We're going to look elsewhere. And then you begin the search. And then you can freely open, uh, openly talk about uh, the interviewing of candidates. And you're not sewering the guy that's behind the bench right now. There's, there's just a very easy solution to all this. And the Canucks neglected to go down that road. Let's talk a little bit about Rutherford's explanation here in this news conference because first he apologized, and but then he started kind of explaining and kind of qualifying it, saying at one point he said, well, this was speculation that drove this. This was out of our control. It almost sounded like he's blaming the media there a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and again, which is very rich, uh, considering he was on the record one week ago he held a news conference a week ago where he openly said to us directly in front of all the cameras, yes, I have talked to several people about, the, about, uh, about coaching. Like, he said that on the record. And then previous to that, it's his own conversations in private with the hockey insiders that got that information out there anyway. How do you think we – like, we knew the name Rick Tockett weeks ago. Weeks ago. Yeah. That didn't come from anybody else but him. And he admitted as much. And then in the second breath says, oh, it's not my fault. It was beyond my control. It's very bizarre. Speaking of Blake Price about the firing of Canucks coach Bruce Boudreaux here and the way it was handled by the team, what kind of impact do you think this had on Boudreaux himself? I mean, he looked, he looked quite emotional in that final game. This must have been tough on him and his family. Well, particularly tough because of where he is in his career, I think. You know, if he's a 58-year-old head coach that knows he'll get behind a bench uh, again sometime in the future, I think it maybe doesn't affect him as much. I think Bruce Boudreaux was looking around wondering, are these my last days? After all these wins, after 50 seasons in hockey, uh, is this my last taste of being in the game? And so it hit him different than it would hit some other guys. I think a lot of guys would have responded with anger. Um, I, I think there's a lot of guys that might have quit, but being the last days, I don't think I think Bruce Boudreaux wanted to try to savor every last moment. And in the end, you know, it was right for him not to quit. Uh, a, you want to get paid for the rest of your contract, and B, um, he got to see this fabulous send off from the fans. So if anything, the fans and the media, in a lot of ways, the the bad guys in the eyes of Jim Rutherford and the Cucks saved this situation in that, you know, for the human being at the very least. Bruce Boudreaux got to feel the warmth of the fans if he didn't get to feel the warmth of the organization. Mm. Yeah, Boudreaux handled it in very classy fashion, I thought. And, and speaking of the fan reaction, like, what did what did you think of that, Blake? Like, you know, the fans, the, the whole Bruce, there it is, chance going on in the games, the fans seemed very sympathetic with him. Well, the, the funny thing is, is I, I don't think anybody disagreed with the decision. The, w- whether it needed to happen now, it was, I suppose, debatable. You could have written it out with him for the rest of the season. But the fans knew that, like, next September, Canucks training camp, Bruce Boudreaux was not going to be the head coach, and he probably shouldn't be the head coach. It's just not the right style of coach for where this team wants to go, building with young players and, and that sort of thing. So nobody disagreed with the decision or the, the want to go in a new direction. It was purely the how and really the how was what galvanized the fans. And, and, hey, Canuck fandom, Canuck Twitter, social media, has been very divided over the past decade. Nothing has galvanized and brought fans together quite like the behavior of the team lately. There's still some debate about this player and that player and what the Canucks should do at the trade deadline. There's still those debates happening, but this is one topic where where fans from every side of every aisle were able to come together and say, this is just a load of it and that this guy is uh, being done wrong here. So um, it really brought everybody together and, and uh, created some, uh, some, some fabulous moments in, in the last couple of nights. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this, this new coach here now, Blake, Rick Tockett, and where do you see the team going here under this new coach? First game tomorrow night. I'm taking a look at the Canucks standings right now. They are 2-8 and eight in the last 10 games. They've lost three games in a row. Uh, you know, I, I'm... As a fan, I would like to see the Canucks improve their chances to get the top draft pick here and and pick this young superstar kid in the first pick. 
is there any indication they might be tanking here? Well, and, and you know, the uh, again, Jim Rutherford sort of talking down to the fans and media again yesterday, saying, "Oh, well, the you know, the coaches and the fan and the uh, and the players will always try to win. We we've got it. We we understand what modern tanking is. Modern tanking is trading away your best players and filling out a very young, inexperienced roster, uh, a depleted roster that even when they play their best, will be hard pressed to win a, a National Hockey League hockey game." That is modern tanking. It comes from the general manager. It doesn't come from the coaches and players. I think everybody is wise enough now in this very hockey-savvy market to know exactly what that is. Um, and I'm on the fence as to whether or not they're going to do that. I mean, the, the should is, is obvious to me. They absolutely, as much as it's heartbreaking because he's a wonderful player in person, trading Bo Horvat is just the right decision at this point because – the Canucks have hemmed themselves in by signing J.T. Miller to this long-term contract, and that contract is likely untradeable right now. If you can trade people other than that, by all means, you do it. Yes, Brock Besser, again, it was as heartbreaking as that would be. Connor Garland, uh, Tyler Myers. You know, there is a list of players that you could trade away right now that would really, really reduce the ability of the Canucks uh, to win the rest of the season. They'll still win the odd game, obviously, but, yeah, they would sink – Further to the bottom, I don't think they can probably get as low as the, the top two draft lottery seeds, but could they get to the three or four slot? It's possible. If they make enough trades Whoa. and bring in enough young players, it's possible. Oh, man. Imagine if they could get a shot at this Connor Bedard from North Vancouver, local kid. This kid is like a generational talent, just lit up the world juniors. Like, I'm looking at this website right now tankathon.com and it mm-hmm. says the Canucks right now is 7.5% chance to get the first draft pick right according to the standings right now could they like dramatically improve that if they lose a whole bunch of games here in the stretch well dramatically is overselling it perhaps because every rung they you know if they if they sink one more spot lower in the NHL standings, they get to eight and a half percent. Then it's nine and a half percent. Then I think there's a bit of a jump to twelve and a half percent. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but it, you know, in the in the course of lottery odds, it actually is a it's a pretty decent bump. But more importantly, is that you can only slide down a couple of spots. So the the higher you rise reduces your sink. You know, so you, if you finish third worst in the NHL, great. You're likely only finishing. You're you're going to pick in the top five for sure. Right, so you, that that that's more the, the it's a defense mechanism more than it is a rising to get Bedard. That's a that's a bonus. You are improving your odds yeah. slightly to to move up, but you're reducing how far you fall, making sure that you're getting one of the top four or five draft picks in the in the draft. Okay, last question for you, Blake. Back to Bruce Boudreau here in the shabby way he was treated by the team. You heard the Canucks president Jim Rutherford there say apologize to him. Kind of a qualified apology, I thought. And then he said he's he's going to stop talking to the media. He's going to zip yeah. it, as he put it. Yeah. Do you think he's the type of guy who will do that? I mean, when you're in the media, you, you like a president who's going to speak out, don't you? Well, there's two fronts where he talks. Again, he'll talk directly to the media, call a news conference and talk. And I believe him when he says he'll stop those. I think he will stop those. My uh, own question is, will he stop talking to the national insiders because he's been quite open with them over the years, not just as a Vancouver Canucks guy. I should make that very clear. When he was with the Penguins, when he was with the Hurricanes, he's been a friend to a lot of those reporters. That's just the way that this business works. Will he still be giving information about the organization to those guys? That's my curiosity. Um, I have no doubt that from here on in, we'll probably see a lot more Patrick Alvine, who is uh, a lot less forthcoming with information with the media. So that that's, that's not the greatest. Uh, and we'll also probably see a lot more of Rick Tockett uh, than we even saw Bruce Boudreau. Blake, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.